I will find some cool shady corner and, and lurk and, and brood. That sounds like a party. I make my own fun. <laughs> This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on Ruby developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average Ruby developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the Ruby Rogues link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept the job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash Ruby Rogues. This episode is sponsored by CodeChip.com. Don't you wish you could simply deploy your code every time your tests pass? Wouldn't it be nice if it were tied to a nice continuous integration system? That's CodeChip. They run your code. If all your tests pass, they deploy your code automatically. For fast, free, continuous delivery, check them out at CodeChip.com. Continuous delivery made simple. This episode is sponsored by Rackspace. Are you looking for a place to host your latest creation? Want terrific support, high performance, all backed by the latest open source cloud? What if you could try it for free? Try out Rackspace at rubyrogues.com slash Rackspace and get a $300 credit over six months. That's $50 per month at rubyrogues.com slash Rackspace. Snap is a hosted CI and continuous delivery that is simple and intuitive. Snap's deployment pipelines deliver fast feedback and can push healthy builds to multiple environments automatically or on demand. Snap integrates deeply with GitHub and has great support for different languages, data stores, and testing frameworks. Snap deploys your application to cloud services like Heroku, DigitalOcean, AWS, and many more. Try Snap for free. Sign up at snapci.com slash rubyrogues. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 191 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Coraline Ada Emke. Hey there. Avdi Grimm. You mean Tom Waits. David Brady. Maybe he didn't come back. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have a special guest. That's Carrie Miller. Hi, everybody. All right, so this week we're talking about the developer happiness team. This is something that Coraline has worked on at Instructure. So we're going to talk about what makes us happy and how to set something like this up so that companies can make it work for, you know, their employees and and make them happy. I'm I'm kind of curious to kind of kick this off. What sorts of things make you guys happy in your work or your career? One of the things that that really occurs to me as uh, as someone who's given a lot of thought to happiness and motivation on a previous show, um, someone had said that like the ultimate purpose of our job is to create working code. And that seemed very practical and utilitarian. I think the process of creation is what brings a lot of us into the field and the ability to, to do our best and create things that are beautiful, understandable, maintainable. Those are a lot of the things that motivate at least me as a developer, knowing that I'm creating something of quality, not just something functional, but something with an aesthetic sort of sensibility to it that, that makes me proud of the work that I do. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, just the fulfillment of doing a good job, something that, yeah, meets that creative standard, whatever it is. For me, it also helps when it's something that makes a difference, you know, something that I feel like it's going to help somebody in some way. Yeah, I actually, I worked for several years for um, a company that was basically, you know, aggregating eyeballs uh, and trying to sell ads. And I think my favorite ad from that time was a Slim Jim ad, uh, you know, snap into a Slim Jim, snap a lope or something like that. 
that would come and dance across people's screens. And uh, after implementing that, you know, you head home and you're like, what am I doing? How happy am I with this? Uh, the next job I did was something uh, similar, but we were building uh, hardware cameras for people to uh, capture their, their outdoor adventures. And uh, it was basically the same exact work of you know, video transcriptions and capturing eyeballs and providing you know, lightweight social networking. But it was much more fulfilling, and it was the same exact work. But I was so much happier with it. It was the same people, same work, just different context for it. I understand like being in a place where things are stressful or you're tired or things are definitely not going the way that you want them to. You know, and I've, I've kind of come out of a couple of months of that. And I, I think overall... I have an idea of the things that make me happy and make me tick, but, you know, sometimes those things just aren't present front and center, and sometimes there are other things that are kind of grabbing your attention, and so at that point, you know, then it comes down to, is work adding to my stress as opposed to improving my life quality, and I think that's something that we generally take for granted, is, you know, I work in a safe place, you know, where I'm not being attacked or being you know, whatever, or I'm, I'm doing stuff that I enjoy, or I'm not bored, <laughs> or things like that, right? You know, where it's instead of these things make me happy, it's I'm not experiencing the things at work that, that really make it a drag. It's really acknowledging that you're, you're, this, you're somebody outside of just that work, too, but that work is such an important big part of not just who we are, I guess, but like, like, you know, how much time we put into it, and that really does impact the rest of our lives sort of brings to mind Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I wonder if something could be constructed along those lines in terms of what makes developers feel happy. Some of the baseline is, you know, I have a job. I'm not getting yelled at. It's a safe place to work. I feel like I'm part of the team. Getting paid enough. Yeah, exactly. Up to, right up to feeling self-actualized, feeling like the work that you're doing is a projection of your own self and your own values being sort of the highest tier on that hierarchy. Marcus Buckingham did a... A 12 question, well, he did a, like a 100 question survey and he found there were 12 questions that really stood out in terms of happiness. And this wasn't just developers, this was across all groups of people. And question number 12 was really interesting because it's, do you have a best friend at work? And every time I've really had really deep job satisfaction, I have. I've had somebody that I hang out with at work that I chat a lot with that I share, you know, intimate personal stuff with. And it's a, a social experience to go to work. And I mentioned this because for the first time, uh, last week, the job that I'm at actually passed that 12 question survey around to us. And I'm like, holy crap, I read about this. And when we were reviewing the survey results, my manager said that he passed this around at a larger company and human resources made him take that question off because it was potentially offensive to the people that just want to come to work and go to work. They're not here to make friends. And then they just want to go home. And it boggled my mind to basically say human resources intervened to remove a valid data point because there were people who were not conforming to the valid data point. It's kind of like, we don't want data here. That, surprised me and i'm assuming they got the answers that they were basically self-fulfilling um, prophecy well yes yeah, yeah, yeah self-fulfilling prophecy yeah they, they they got the data that they forced the system into giving them yeah mm, you yeah. discovered yeah. the uh, the hidden final step of the scientific process where you know step one we d- devise a hypothesis then we devise an experiment and then we test that 
uh, hypothesis via the experiment. And then the final step, of course, is to modify the experiment to match the hypothesis. <laughs> yes. Uh, we did a whole yes. episode on that. There's lies, damn lies, and then there's statistics. It does bring up a point, though. I mean, that uh, happiness looks different for everybody. You know, like, I mean, there are, there's a lot of commonalities, but um, very often when you get down into, like, what are the nitty gritty details of what makes somebody happy? Uh, we might both say we want to be respected professionally, but what that looks like could be completely different uh, depending on who you are and what your background is. Yeah. Well, and I also know people that, you know, their main fulfillment comes from, I got 10 things done today. And for me, my fulfillment factors come from other people. And so, you know, it's, hey, I impacted the team. I impacted the customers. You know, I got positive feedback. And on a day-to-day thing, you know, the best friend at work, you know, talking Dave's point, I mean, that that's a big deal for me because I'm a much more social person than other people who are, you know, maybe more detail-oriented or, you know, need to feel like they're taking charge or things like that. So, yeah, it, it really does. But at the same time, you know, I think that a lot of the other factors, you know, that you're talking about are important to me. And if I'm failing dreadfully in those, then I really won't be happy with my work anyway. Do you feel like that competition versus collaboration question is a matter of maturity or something that's baked into our personalities? I don't know. I I would argue that the answer to that is yes. How do you mean? Uh, Meaning both. And in some people very much one and not the other Um, and other people the other way around. And in, in, in other words, I think they're both contributing factors and there's no universal contributor to it. I, I can, I can totally see people who change, you know, their internal happiness function. They changed it as they matured and grew. And I also know people that are, I don't want to use the word bloody minded, but I mean, <laughs> you know, they've had the same things make them happy 10 years on that did 10 years ago. I'm one of the latter or one of the former types, and I really envy people who know what makes them happy and have always known what makes them happy and can get what they need to make themselves happy. I find happiness is... I was going to say, maybe I'm just a really unhappy person. (laughs) Oh, dear. I find happiness is is kind of a fleeting thing, and as often as not, catches me by surprise. With regard to work, I think the most important thing to me is eliminating the elements that can block those moments of happiness. I'm not sure I look to work to make me happy, but I would I would want to eliminate those factors which make the happiness impossible when it does or, or diminish the happiness when it does arrive. Um and there are a lot of things that a job or a vocation can do to stymie happiness. Mm-hmm. That's a really good point. I never kiss my wife and say, "See you tonight, honey. I'm off to go be happy." I'm, I'm always, I'm always thinking, I'm gonna go sort out the CI server, or I'm gonna go get this thing fixed, or I'm gonna fix this bug that's been keeping me up at night for the past three days. I'm gonna go do something, I'm gonna go fix something, and that's part of, probably part of my happiness function. But this can tell when I'm about to change jobs, because I'll be puttering around the house kind of listlessly, and she'll go, what's going on? And I said, I'm, I'm really unhappy at work. And yeah, happiness is like a realization you have after Happiness and unhappiness are observations you make almost in hindsight. And it's not usually something we set as our direct objective. But I like what you said, Avdi, about there are things that can obstruct happiness. Because if you don't, I don't want to say plan for happiness, but maybe that's what I mean. If you don't, if you don't plan for happiness and make preparations to eliminate unhappiness, 
you may just get what life throws at you instead of what you're trying to achieve. Yeah, and I, I, th- I mean, I think it's good to make a distinction between efforts to to get out of the way of happiness or opportunities for happiness and efforts to sort of enforce fun, because I think those are very two very, very different things. Yes. Should we um, aspire to one or the other or both, or does it depend? I'm not a fan of the, uh, of the mandatory fun. <laughs> <laughs> you'll have fun, dang <laughs> it, and you'll life. like it. But you know, I've, I've, you know, I've, I've had days where I just wound up having a terrific conversation with a coworker, and it kind of made my day. And you know, that wasn't planned for by my employer, but it was maybe facilitated, or either in some cases facilitated by them by hiring the right people, and you know, and, and giving them opportunities to to chat and feel like they can chat. Or in other cases, in other cases, a company maybe failed to prevent me from doing that, but. Uh, <laughs> despite efforts (laughs) but you know these things they they pop up you know and they're not always people things i mean i've certainly had happy moments like just discovering a great little ruby idiom that worked really well to solve a problem and you know again this is not something that was provided for by my work but maybe they facilitated it by you know letting people use you know whatever awesome programming language they wanted to and giving them the leeway to experiment, yada, yada, yada. So, yeah. Guess, I'm not sure it's about, like, making things f- fun or making people happy. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, Alton. No, no, um, no, go ahead. I'm done. I was, th- I was thinking about it, that, you know, naming things is hard. And so it, is it happiness that we're talking about, or is it more, like, fulfillment and satisfaction? It's like, when you look back, you're like, yes, that, that fulfilled some need that I had, that, you know, to discover, to create, to... Uh, to craft something, to have that sort of professional fulfillment of that. Yeah, it's interesting in the book, um, Thinking Fast and Slow, they demonstrate that humans are almost composed of two different people. The person who experiences pleasure at the moment, at this present moment, or experiences something at this present moment, you know, and then the person who reflects back on their experiences and says, I was happy then, or, or I was unhappy then. And, and it's surprising how far removed those people can be from each other. You know, you can ask them moment by moment, how do you feel now? How do you feel now? How do you feel now? And then at the very end, you give them a really lousy experience. And, you know, in retrospect, that lousy experience at the end will dominate their entire recollection. You know, if you go by their moment by moment experience, it was a happy, happy time for them. If you go by their recollection, it was a sad time for them. That's really interesting. I'm kind of going to start driving us toward the developer happiness team. But I want to do it by asking another question, because Avdi, when you're talking about this experience, you're saying, well, maybe my work facilitated this experience by hiring the right people or by doing certain things or allowing certain things. And so I'm wondering how much of this is driven by the company we're working for, or the client we're working for, or the situation that we're in versus uh, how much of this is driven by our own experience, our own you know, our own decisions to do certain things or to feel certain way or, you know, however that works. You know, how much of that is driven by the company versus ourselves, I guess? I think happiness as a, as a cultural value or satisfaction or however we want to frame that is something that we can be deliberate about without the enforcing fun sort of aspect of it. For example, if your company is really driven by pair programming, doing full-time TDD, and you hire someone who's not comfortable with those things, you have negatively impacted their experience of the workplace. And it may be a compromise that they make early on 
that they're comfortable with, but over time, that's going to be a source of dread. It's going to be a source of friction, and it's ultimately going to lead to them being unhappy and your inability to retain them long-term. That's part of the problem with where we've lost sight of what we mean when we say culture fit, where once we've, we've just assumed that everybody does agile and we all have the same understanding what agile is, just as an example. So why would you be unhappy with how we do agile here? Because here's this term and we all agree to it, and obviously you do it. When I'm doing interviewing um, to hire and I'm looking, thinking about that culture fit, I'm looking specifically at what is motivating a person, not just what, their, what abilities they have, but what, what brings them pleasure, what do they enjoy about this job, what brings them that sort of happiness in their day-to-day work that's going to make them a happy employee. Maybe they like the enforced fun. You know, Maybe they like the Thursday afternoon, we all have to have happy hour, or we all sing happy birthday on Wednesday morning, or whatever it is, and they like that. Maybe that isn't, this isn't the job for them, or maybe it is on the flip side. Uh, some people like open offices, some people like closed offices. You wouldn't hire somebody that loves open offices who's going to be working in a, cube, in a, a closed office environment. So why would you do the same thing for somebody who wants to work with other people or, um, as you said, like wants to have that sort of enforced fun versus the sort of discovered enjoyment? I have to say that most of the companies that I've worked for that have made these decisions, they mostly made it by accident. You know, so you've got the you know, all of the developers are in the same room. Uh, somebody made the decision to uh, turn off all the lights. Cubicles versus tables versus desks were all, you know, decided because they could or couldn't afford specific things. You know, the hardware that people are working on. Agile is based on the manager's experience. You know, and so they're not making these decisions by anything but default. So I'm wondering what it looks like if they are deliberately making these decisions. And how do you make these decisions? I've worked at a few companies where, where it has been a deliberate decision from the start of like, how do we define a culture that makes people happy? What what makes that core, that initial core team happy? And how does that, those decisions um, line up with what the business demands are? For example, like you were saying, like instead of accidentally picking the right cubicle table configuration, like understanding that this is the way it is and how do we build, how do we build happiness around it? Um, I don't think it's something that we really, we really talk about. And it's certainly not something that we teach. Um, I went to hippie school where we talk a lot about our feelings and like understanding how people work together and how to, how to understand human relationships. Um, like that's part of that, uh, the curriculum almost. Um, did, did you get a degree get a in hippie? In business school to have that. <laughs> have you seen how I dress? Of course. You have to have a degree. <laughs> much tie-dye. A PhD in H-I-P-P-I-E. That's what the H stands for, right? In that's PhD. Right. Yeah. Professional hippie. I don't know what the D stands for. Uh, Dude. Dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, I don't think it's something that you study. In, in business school, right? Like talk to you about MBAs. It's you know it's about inflows and outflows, and you know doing spreadsheets and understanding the, the demands of you know 20th century or 21st century American business. It's not about necessarily like how do you manage a team of people? How do you organize those people for happiness to make sure that they're maximized for their own their own personal potential as opposed to you know how what's what's their potential in terms of the business? Yep. So so how do you guys? manage it in your companies where you have like a culture group or a happiness group and you know how do you how do you think about this how do you make these decisions in a deliberate way at instructure we started with data because you know as developers we're supposedly scientists right so we actually put together a survey and sent it out to all of engineering basically asking them what stands in your way of you know being productive of being satisfied with the work that you're doing of deriving you know happiness and and pride in the work that you're doing what are those things that are obstacles or what what's causing friction for you 
and it was a we had some specific ideas like based on our own experience as engineers at the company as to some of the things that were standing in our way our ci server for example our long-running test suite so we did have some questions that were sort of categorized to establish some baseline values around those known friction points but we also had very open-ended questions and got some interesting responses in terms of what was really motivating people and what were demotivators so for us, it all started with a survey. Interesting. So I guess we should ask Carrie the same question before we move ahead, but I'm curious what was on the survey. So one of you two can go ahead and take it, I guess. <laughs> go ahead. We'll come back to me. A lot of what came out that we were somewhat surprised about had to do with less with software problems and more with people problems, with interactions between people, wanting to find more opportunities to learn new technologies, wanting to find new opportunities to collaborate with other developers and looking for mentoring opportunities or the opportunity to be mentored. Um, I think one of the things that we talk about a lot of software developers is like that we like to solve hard problems. But when it comes to those interpersonal things, that's something that maybe we're, we shy away from. But those interpersonal dealings that we have with our fellow developers, with product, with whoever we interact with, are really, really critical to how we feel about our jobs and critical to eliminating that sense of dread that maybe some people have when they're doing their morning commute. Interesting. How, how does this line up with your experience, Kerry? Um, no, this, this actually lines up really tightly uh, with my experience in, in terms of like using surveys to like sort of get those questions and get people thinking. A lot of companies have those sort of acronym driven cultures where they have, you know, an acronym and each, each letter is, you know, another word in their culture. Yeah. And uh, oh, very often, ADCs? like there's nothing specific attached to that. I'm sorry. You mean ADCs? <laughs> yes, exactly. Okay. I, I tweeted about it as an acronym-driven development this morning, but it's the same idea. No, I have that acronym. It means something else. <laughs> what? Me too. Shiny. Um, <laughs> Shiny thing? Where? <laughs> so, so you Anyway, up- back to what you were so saying. What I like to do is um, I have this... Yeah. So, you know, like I, I really start these conversations at, at this really high level too, where once we sort of like figure out like, well, what does it mean that, okay, so somebody says, I want more freedom to work on open source. Okay, what does that mean? What does that look like? What is the specific action that's going to result in you working in on more open source? Does it mean you want Friday afternoons? Does it mean you want us to sponsor open source? Do you want to go to conferences and speak about it? Um, how do we make that happen for you within the context of the company? And then pulling back from that even. When people say something like, I want, uh, I keep coming back to the idea of respect, but what does respect look like? And if respect is a value that makes us happy, what are the concrete things that, that bring us to that point? So basically you boil it down to things that are actionable. Things that you can say, okay, we can deliver that or we can't deliver that, or here's how we're going to deliver that. And you can make a plan around it. Exactly. That's exactly yeah, that's exactly what we did. We We categorized the feedback that we got. Almost all of it was relevant. We did find that some people wanted massages on Fridays and that someone else liked turtles. But aside from that, most of the items we found were actionable. We were able to classify them into things like CI or learning opportunities or things along those lines. And then we basically brainstormed ways that we could move the metrics on those individual sort of categories of of things that made people more happy or more satisfied or more fulfilled. And we are very public about the metrics that we're trying to move in any given period of time, any given quarter, just to keep the emphasis on the fact that we are working to make things better and we are listening. That was one of the main surprising bits of feedback that we got, honestly, was that people were so thankful to be asked 
what their thoughts were and what was standing in their way and how the company could better support them. There was a sense of relief and astonishment that someone would actually take the time to ask the question and put together a team of people whose responsibility it was to make that happen. I'm really curious, Carrie, you said that you're in like the culture something group or committee or whatever. Does that mostly encompass happiness or are there other things that you talk about there? I mean, is your job the same as Coraline's or are there other concerns that, that you deal with or that Coraline deals with that we just don't think about? Um, at the scale that we're working with, with um, we have around 140 to 150 developers at this point. Mm-hmm. It's a lot more sort of trying to, so um, for example, uh, somebody wrote a uh, blog post, like, forgive me, I can't remember who, about the idea of unlimited PTO. Like just, just stop track, tracking when people take time off, right? And so that, that came up and that was a topic of discussion in our internal Slack rooms. And so the, the culture committee had a meeting about it and said, hey, this is getting a lot of, people are talking about this idea. What do we think about it? How, what would this look like? The culture committee is made of people who are interested in the topic, obviously, but from a number of different groups around the company. How does each group sort of think about an idea or, or a policy change, or and how, how will that impact them, and how would it sort of move their own needles that, of uh, metrics that they're tracking as a group? So we're thinking we think a lot about sort of how to make people happier, but also defining what it is that, that makes us as a group, you know, actually a group and actually a culture that's moving forward. Seems like a a good way to avoid some of the unintended consequences that sometimes occur. Mm-hmm. Like, what do you mean? Oh, I'm thinking about things like, you know, everybody decided, suddenly decided that open plan offices were a great idea. And it turns out that for a lot of people, they really don't work out so well. Mm-hmm. So at well, least having the conversation about it means that somebody's exploring whether or not it really is a good idea. Is that what you're trying yeah. to do? Yeah. Yeah. Instead of just like a few people who are like, obviously this is the best idea. And cool. That's it. So, One place I worked had um, like monthly all-hand meetings, and the company was small enough that we could do that. Um, even up to the point we got like 50 or 60 people, we would still have these all-hand monthly meetings. About a week before the meeting, um, they would do a tiny survey that had at most three questions, and it was basically read this question on a scale of one to five, you know, agree, disagree. Sometimes, you know, how happy are you or how satisfied are you with the new vacation policy or, or whatever it was. And there was always an other comments box. Like, do you have any suggestions or feedback or ideas or just anything you want to talk about? Then at the all hands meeting, at the end of the month, they would surface these metrics and you know, aggregate and say, here's where, you know, here's the, the different buckets where people voted on this. So we all had about a topic as a group. And then we could see the, the other comments that people were leaving, for example. And it wasn't always related to the questions that were being asked. So someone could say, I don't like the new 401k policy or, do we have a 401k policy? What's going on with that? Or, you know, who's the new person? You know, often like also silly things too, like we need more green M&Ms, you know, whatever it was. But it was like having a, a venue for that and constantly surfacing it really made people feel like they were involved because their voice was being heard and things were being discussed. Coraline or Carrie, have either of you read, or actually his TED Talk is almost better than his book, but uh, Dan Pink's book, Drive? I have not. Yep, I have yeah. Okay. So Dan basically boils down the three things that make people motivated. And he, he claims that the core elements are autonomy, mastery, and purpose. And autonomy is people want to be in control of what they do. Mastery is they want to get better at things just for the challenge of it. And purpose is they want to feel like they belong to something bigger. But it really sounds like there's this other current here that we're talking about of depending on where you set the slider on the scale, it's either we either want to feel respected and or trusted 
or we want to feel like management just doesn't have an overarching sense of contempt for us. And I've worked in plenty of places that were in both extremes. Is there like a fourth element to it? And, and I'm, I'm just, we, we can, we can have a, an underlying question of is Dan Pink wrong? But if he's right, is there a fourth element of respect slash lack of contempt? I think there, there absolutely is. And again, to, to go back to that hierarchy of needs concept, being respected for the work that you do, you know, most of us need some sort of external input and external feedback that is telling us how we're doing, not just as developers, but as human beings. That's something that we look for other people to provide to us. And if we don't feel like we are being acknowledged or, you know, it doesn't have to be praised, but at least acknowledged for the hard work that we do, um, because the work we do is taxing and challenging and very personal. Uh, if we don't feel like that is garnering any respect or getting us any sort of acknowledgement as a, as a acknowledgement for the work that we're doing, that can be very hard to, to keep going. And, um, you know, what happens when we don't feel the, the need to keep going to a given place is we're going to find some other place that feels like it's going to satisfy us more. Mm-hmm. I, I keep plugging cover my meds because I just started working there a month ago and I'm still definitely in the honeymoon phase with them. And when we talk about like unlimited PTO, I can hear through the microphone, I can hear all the managers out there going, well, what if somebody abuses it? And that what if somebody abuses it is if you're one of the people that said, what if somebody abuses it? You are part of the problem. You are one of the people who has a fundamental contempt for your employees or a fear that you haven't hired the right people. And that's something to think about. Uh, we still love you. Keep listening to the show. But I absolutely agree with you, David, because I, there's such an aspect of, of uh, you know, let's, let's just treat everyone as if they're professionals and adults, you know, a lot of that sort of stuff. And a lot of policies where we have to make a policy, well, why can't we deal with that person as an individual? And in my, my experience of, of policies like that, I immediately feel infantilized a little bit, right? Like I can't be trusted. You know, there's all these things that I can't be trusted because somebody else, you know, broke a rule at some point um, rather than being treated as an individual and responsible. Um, And this is why like I do policies when I'm a manager of like, I just say, Hey everybody, you have buying a book or a piece of software or going to a conference. You've got a blank check for $1,200 or, you know, whatever that budget is. You spend it how you want. Just give me the receipt and we'll pay you back. It's, It's no questions asked. Because I'm treating you as an adult. That's a lot of cookies. Just as a kind of flip side of that, though, I I read a very interesting blog post recently from a company that reevaluated their unlimited PTO or that you know their unlimited vacation time, I guess, policy, and and moved away from it. And not because oh, people were taking too much vacation time. It was actually because people were taking too little. They you know looked at the data and they looked at what had been happening to team members, and they realized that with unlimited time, everybody was was a little afraid of taking too much or being the one who took the most, I guess. And so 